We're uh, finishing out our series in the book of Job. I'm going to be reading from Job chapter 42, last chapter. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, The book of Job is right before the book of Psalms. So if you're trying to find it in your Bible, find Psalms. That's the biggest one, kind of in the middle. And then it's the book before that. And chapter 42 is the last chapter in the book of Job. I'm going to read this whole chapter. Uh, And then I'm going to ask the Lord for help, and then we'll dive in. Job chapter 42, starting in verse 1. Here's what the word of the Lord says. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Timonite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went in and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, in the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapak. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Let's pray. Father, I ask you for your help now, please. Holy Spirit, uh, help me to rightly divide the word of truth and help all of us to hear. Give us ears to hear. Help us to humbly receive your word, God. I pray that your word would shape our hearts and minds, not the other way around. Don't let us take your word and try to make it say what we want it, Lord. But I, I pray that we would hear straight from you this morning, Lord. And that as a result, you would make us more like Jesus. And I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know Jesus, 
that has not been born again, that hasn't experienced the glorious um, reconciliation and promise of restoration that we're going to talk about. I pray that today you would give them eyes to see, give them faith. May they believe, may they see that there's no other hope. There's no other deliverer who can rescue us from our sin and from our trials. It's only you, Jesus. We love you and I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so the main point of this series, the sermon series that we've been walking through, that we've been saying is this. While we may suffer in ways we don't understand, we can endure knowing that God sovereignly orchestrates suffering for His glory and our good. That's really been the overarching theme of the book of Job. God is sovereign over suffering. He ordains it even, but He orchestrates all of it for His glory and our good. We don't understand everything He's doing in our suffering, but we can know that. I don't think it's an accident that the only place in the New Testament that Job is mentioned in James chapter 5, verse 11, refers to the Lord's compassionate and merciful purposes. James 5.11 says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. What is the purpose of the Lord? How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So in the end, Job's suffering was not pointless. God had good purposes in bringing Job through these severe trials. He was not afflicting him from the heart. So what are the good purposes of God? There there are some that we can't know and there are some that we can. We can't know all that God is doing in the midst of our suffering. Uh, This is one of the most important lessons in the book of Job. If you've been with us throughout the series, then you've picked up on this. Um, One of the primary... Uh, points that the book of Job makes is that God's not always going to answer the why question. He's more concerned with answering a who question. Job asked God why over and over again. Why am I suffering? Why are you not hearing me? And in the end, when the Lord finally responded to Job, he didn't answer that question. Instead, the Lord revealed who he is to Job. And the result was that Job was humbled and he repented forever questioning God. Job learned that rather than understanding everything, he needed to trust God's person and God's promises. The fact is, is that there are many things we'll never understand about God's ways. But there are some things that we can know. And there are some things that the Scripture reveals to us about what God is doing in our suffering. And that's what I want to turn our attention to today. And this is important Because we need hope. Some of you are suffering right now, and if you're not, one day you will. And as followers of Jesus, our Lord told us to expect suffering. And the only way we can endure is if we know that our suffering is not meaningless or endless. The good news is that God does have good purposes in our suffering, and our suffering is heading towards a stunning reversal. There are also some here who need hope because you have sinned against the Lord in your suffering. Unlike Job, you have sinned against God with your lips. You're angry with God. 
You have not spoken right about God. You're bitter towards the Lord for the season of suffering that He's called you to walk through. And there is hope for you too, even if you haven't spoken well of God. Job chapter 42 teaches that there is mercy and grace for both sinners and sufferers. The title of today's sermon is The Goodness of God Towards Sinners and Sufferers. I want to examine the way that God responded to Job's friends, the sinners, and to Job, the sufferer, to discover His good purposes for both. So that's where we're heading this morning. Those are our two points. God graciously reconciles sinners and God mercifully restores sufferers. So let's start by looking in verses 7 to 9 a little more carefully to see how God graciously reconciles sinners. So in verse 7, God confronted Job's friends in their sin. He says, You have not spoken well of me as my servant Job has. And he actually repeats that twice. He says it once in verse 7 and once in verse 8 just to drive home the point. So what exactly did these guys do that made God so angry with them? The Lord says, my anger burns against you, right? That's not just a little bit of irritation. Clearly the Lord is upset with these men, right? So what did they do? Well, they misrepresented God to Job by wrongly insisting that Job's calamity was punishment from God due to his sin. That just wasn't true. They were speaking falsehoods about God and misrepresenting God. Now, while it is a biblical principle that you reap what you sow, applying that rigidly to mean that all suffering is a direct result of sin is misguided at best. And Pastor Andrew really covered that last week in the sermon examining the uh, Job's friends. So had Job followed their counsel, he would have been led astray. He wouldn't have been led closer to the Lord. In fact, what they were really doing was they were basically telling Job, Job, look, you just need to jump through this repentance hoop and start being righteous again, and then God will bless you, right? As long as you do good things, God will bless you, Job. They were basically preaching the prosperity gospel to Job. So they weren't telling Job the truth. That was the first reason that the Lord was not pleased with what they said, even though they said lots of really good things. They used a lot of the same language. And by the way, you can go and listen to a prosperity preacher and you'll see about 90% of the stuff they say is really good, but that 10% can poison the entire well. They said good things, but they misrepresented God. They also misrepresented God in another way to Job. Not only did they speak what was false, but they failed to have compassion. They weren't gracious. They were missing grace and truth. In their zeal to defend God, ironically, they have failed to uphold the one law that holds the entire law together. Love your neighbor as yourself. If your theology causes you to be more concerned with correcting a sufferer than comforting a sufferer, then you need a new theology. Job's friends were sincere. They said some good things, but they failed to tell the truth and they failed to show compassion. They were lacking in grace and truth. But even though these friends lacked grace and truth, God was gracious towards them. That's what's amazing. God is gracious towards sinners. He extended grace 
to the very people who lacked grace. Look at verse 8 again. He says, Take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. So the Lord did two things here. He, he provided a means of atonement by telling them to sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams, which in that day would have been a pretty extravagant and expensive sacrifice to make. And then God provided an intercessor in Job of all people, the one guy that they had just been admonishing and accusing of being a great big sinner. And he's like, yeah, that's the guy you need to go to and ask to pray for you so that you can be restored. And to their credit, that's exactly what they did. Just as Job repented when God confronted him in the first six verses of chapter 42, Eliphaz and the rest of his buddies repented when God rebuked them. And what I want to point out to you all here is that really what we have here is is we have in Job a type of Christ or a foreshadowing of Christ. The Lord, just as He provided a means of atonement for Job's friends, He has also provided a means of atonement and an intercessor for us. Just as Job was an innocent sufferer, Jesus was an innocent sufferer. Just as Job was falsely accused, Jesus was falsely accused. Just as Job forgave and prayed for those who afflicted him, Jesus cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Except that Jesus went much, much further than Job. Job did not die for his enemies. He did not lay his life down for his persecutors. But Jesus died in our place. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of those who do not speak well of Him. The wages for your sin, for my sin, the Bible says, is death. This is what we deserve. But Christ died on the cross to absorb that judgment in your place. If you try to justify yourself before God like Job's friends and suppose that you can earn God's favor, you will never, ever be right with God because there's no way you could ever attain to God's righteousness. Your only hope is that God gave His only Son, Jesus, to die in your place so that you, a sinful man or a sinful woman, could receive the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. That's the reason that, as the Lord, I love how the Lord says uh, to Job's friends, He says, I will accept this prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. It's the same kind of wording in Psalm 103 that says He does not deal with us according to our sins. Why? Because of Christ. Because of the finished work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. That's the only reason God doesn't deal with us according to our sins. If not for the work of Christ, we would be deserving of death and eternal damnation, separated from God in hell. But the good news of the gospel is that God has come in the person of Christ to give us life. And Jesus rose from the dead so that now He lives forever to intercede for everyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Him. 
Just as Job interceded for his friends, Jesus now intercedes at the Father's right hand all the time, without sleeping, without slumber for everyone who trusts in Him. Jesus is pleading His blood on your behalf before the presence of the Father. So perhaps you have not spoken well of the Lord. Maybe you've been bitter against God and you've even spoken evil of Him amidst your suffering. The good news is that God is merciful and gracious. He extends grace and mercy to Job's friends and to Job. And so if you are in Christ, despite your sin, God is continually with you. And because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, He will receive you into glory. Not because of your perfection. Jesus didn't die for you to forgive you of your sins, to give you a clean slate so that you could finish the job the rest of the way. No, no. Christ died and bore your sins, past, present, and future, and He has promised to hold you fast. And so, if you're a Christian and you are recognizing that I have not been suffering well, I've been sinning against the Lord in my suffering. I've been grumbling against God like the Israelites did in the wilderness. As soon as I entered into any type of suffering, I mean, guys, are, are we not, we're so, we're so bad at suffering, aren't we? Like, gosh, it doesn't take more than stubbing our toe before we start to get angry at the Lord, right? Like any sort of adversity seems like it can just cause us to, like the Israelites, to want to go back to Egypt. Oh, I just missed the onions and the leeks. Oh, we don't have any water. Oh, I'm tired of manna. I want quail. Oh, this. Oh, that's right. Man, the good news is the Lord is compassionate and gracious. So if that's you this morning, just confess that before the Lord. And ask Him to forgive you. You don't have to carry around your guilt and your, and, and your shame. Christ died for your sins, but you, but you got to repent of that. You can't keep going in that direction and continuing to grumble against the Lord, all right? Maybe you're here this morning, though, and you've never trusted in Jesus for your salvation. I want to invite you to do that by simply confessing your sin to God and deciding to trust and follow Jesus today. And once you've made that decision, the next step is to follow Christ in baptism. If you've never taken either of those steps, please come talk to us afterwards. Myself, Pastor Andrew, Keith, John, either one of us, we would love to talk to you about that and help you take those next steps. God graciously reconciles sinners. We see that clearly in verses 7 and 9. But not only does He do that, but we can have hope and joy even amidst suffering because God has also promised to restore God mercifully restores sufferers. The Lord restored all that Job had lost twofold. Now, there's a couple of things I want to point out about the Lord's restoration of Job here that I want to point to your attention to in the text. Look at verse 10 a little more carefully. It says that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. Did you catch that? It's interesting, isn't it? It was only after Job had prayed for his friends that the Lord restored his fortunes. Now let me ask you, does that that mean that Job earned his restoration by forgiving his friends? No. No, it doesn't. This this blessing by God was a, a free gift of God's grace. God wasn't obligated to restore Job's fortunes, just like God wasn't obligated to bless Job in the first place in chapter 1. 
It was all a free gift of God's grace. So what's, what was, what's going on here? What does this mean? You see, Job was not earning God's grace when he forgave his friends. He was demonstrating that he had already received God's grace. And we see that in the beginning of chapter 42, right? The Lord, and starting in chapter 38, God responds to all of Job's questions, and he basically puts Job in his place. He says, okay, Job, you're ready to question me and tell me how the universe is ran. Where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? And he, begin, and he continues peppering Job with questions, and at the end, Job is like, okay, uncle, I give. He says, I lay my hand on my mouth. And in chapter 42, he says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And the Lord forgives Job. We clearly know that the Lord forgives Job because he restores him here. Job was simply showing the same grace to his friends that he had already himself received from the Lord. He was just revealing that he, had, that he was like his father in heaven. Maybe your suffering is a result of some way that someone has harmed you. Now, Job's friends weren't the ones that initially brought his calamity upon him, but they sure didn't help, did they? I mean, they, they really kind of dug the knife in, right? They made it a lot worse. They caused him much more anguish than he already had. Maybe there's been somebody who has done that to you in your life. And here's what I want you to understand, though. Forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 14 to 15. He said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's the same principle. If you refuse to forgive others, it shows that you've never really experienced the Father's forgiveness for yourself. Your heart is still hardened. Forgiven people forgive people. So don't use your hurt as a justification for bitterness and unforgiveness against others. That will stand in the way of God's restoration of you. It's only hurting yourself. God's restoration is coming. It is certain, but it is coming for forgiven people and forgiving people, okay? And really, you can't have one without the other. The promise of restoration is for those whose sins have been washed by the blood of Jesus and whose hearts have been changed by God's grace. I'm not saying it is easy to forgive people. It's not. But if you have something against someone who has hurt you, then the Lord is inviting you to find freedom from bitterness today. When you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, you're being like your Father in heaven. It sounds crazy. It sounds unreasonable until you realize that that is precisely what God in Christ has done for us. And our sin against God was far more grievous than anything anyone has ever done to us. Um, I was planning on telling this story already even before our, our conference, 
uh, over the last two days. So if you were at the uh, What About Evil conference on Friday and Saturday, then you heard Scott Christensen tell this story, but I'm going to tell it again because I already wrote my sermon before that. And many of you haven't heard it. So Corey Ten Boom, she was a, a Christian in a Christian family uh, during World War II, uh, and um, her family was all arrested and put into concentration camps for helping to hide Jews uh, during the Holocaust. And she spent two years at Ravensbrück, uh, a concentration camp where she watched her sister Betsy waste away and die. All of her family members actually uh, were murdered in the Holocaust. Uh, she and her others were subjected to the worst imaginable conditions and humiliation, uh, being stripped naked before guards, starved, uh, all sorts of unspeakable horrors that they endured. And after the war, Corey survived, uh, and she began to go around and speak at churches and to share her story. And one day after speaking and sharing the gospel, she was approached uh, by a man afterwards who was very excited, and he uh, came up and he began to express to her how thankful he was for the gospel and for God's mercy, and that he knew he had been forgiven of his sins. But the thing was, is that as he approached her, she immediately recognized his face. And her fears were confirmed when, after he introduced himself, he informed her that he himself had been a guard at Ravensbrook. He himself had been one of the men who had, who had gazed lustfully at the women as they made their way into the cold shower rooms. He had been one of the guards who had jeered at them and mocked them. He had been one of the guards, one of the many guards at this concentration camp whose hands were responsible for the death of all of her family members. And he held out his hand to hers. And as she tells the story, immediately she felt anger and a desire for vengeance come into her heart. And she couldn't take it. In the moment, she felt like she could not possibly raise her hand to meet his. She felt no warmth, no compassion, and so she prayed, and she asked for help, and still she felt, she felt nothing, and she prayed, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. And so in that moment, she just stuck out her hand, and she goes on to share this. She wrote, as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that overwhelmed me. Forgiving someone who has abused you or abandoned you or hurt you is one of the hardest things in the Christian life. It's impossible for us to do in our strength, but we don't have to. As Corey went on to say in her book, when God tells us to love our enemies, He gives along with the command, the love itself. So if that's you this morning, the only way you're going to be able to love your enemies, the only way that you're going to be able to pray for those who've persecuted you is if you call on the Lord Jesus for help and then you take that first step of faith in the direction of reconciliation. You've got to take that first step. You can't do it on your own, but you can ask God to give you His love for them. It was only after Job had prayed for his friends that the Lord restored 
his fortunes. There's one other thing I want to point out about this restoration. Look again in verse 10. It says that the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So not only did God repair the relationships that had been broken in Job's life through his suffering, but the Lord restored everything that Job had lost twofold. The, the passage goes on to describe how the Lord doubled Job's livestock and gave him ten more children. And Job lived to be an old man and full of days. The restoration of Job is important because it proves that God is a life-giving God. He doesn't afflict us for no reason. God only ordains evil in our lives to bring about a greater good that could not be brought about in any other way. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself right now, well, Jared, this hasn't been my experience. I've suffered. I've grieved. I've lost, and despite my persistent prayers, God hasn't restored anything. He hasn't brought back my health or my loved one or opened my womb or restored my finances. Many people suffer for years and years and never experience healing or restoration in this life. So what hope does Job's restoration offer us? Well, Job's story is not meant to teach us that we will always receive twofold what we have lost back in this life. Job's restoration actually foreshadows a greater coming restoration in the future. The doubling of all that Job lost points to the completeness of the restoration that Jesus Christ will bring about in the new heavens and the new earth. The gospel is good news because Jesus came to bring light and life. He came into a dark world filled with sin and death and loss. But rather than succumb to sin and to death, Jesus healed the lame. He cast out demons and he raised the dead. And he himself ultimately rose from the dead after three days. Jesus is the promised Savior that the Bible points to. He has risen from the dead and He has ascended into heaven where He reigns and His kingdom is now advancing through His church. And the church is a foreshadowing of Jesus' kingdom where peace and joy and righteousness will reign. We're, as God's people, we're meant to live as citizens of the kingdom in the midst of a dark world so that the world can catch a glimpse of what is to come when they're in our midst so that they can see a community of people who really love one another, who have joy, who have peace, who forgive one another when we sin against each other. But it's just a preview. It's just a foreshadowing because one day Jesus is going to return and He is going to bring His kingdom of peace and of restoration here to the earth. He's going to descend and Christ Jesus is going to reign on the earth with us and we'll see Him face to face, just like we sang in that song earlier. All causes of sin and all of the rebellious will be cast out into the lake of fire. Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire, never to accuse or to tempt or to afflict ever again. And death will be swallowed up forever, along with all pain and all sorrow. Amen is right. And we'll be given new, resurrected, and glorified bodies and we'll dwell in a new 
glorified creation. We won't even be able to sin anymore. There won't be anything that will present any sort of danger whatsoever, and it will go on for all of eternity. Revelation 21, 1-4 depicts it. It says, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Praise the Lord. Just so that you know, don't take my word for it. That's straight from God's word. That's a picture that the Apostle John gave us into our certain future if you are in Christ. When Jesus returns, all of that will come to fruition. That's the future that awaits us. And let me, I just want to close by giving you an illustration to kind of drive home how powerful that actually is for our lives. I want you to consider the story of Joni Erickson Tata. Does anybody know who Joni Erickson Tata is? She's an incredible author and and speaker, godly woman, and uh, she was paralyzed in a diving accident at the age of 17 and became a quadriplegic. Um, She's been paralyzed from her neck down for her entire life. Uh, She's a follower of Jesus, but she has endured tremendous physical suffering for decades, and honestly, it has worsened as she has aged. And I want you to listen and consider her eternal perspective. Listen to her reflection on the new heavens and the new earth and what this means for somebody in her shoes, and then think about what it means for you in your shoes. She writes this, I can scarcely believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body. Light, bright, and clothed in righteousness. Powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone spinal cord injured like me? Or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, or who has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. Brothers and sisters, this is why we can rejoice always as the Apostle Paul encourages us to in Philippians chapter 4. And here's the thing. Not only do we know what God is going to do to our suffering, there's going to be a stunning reversal when Jesus returns, But we know that even now, God is working in our suffering. It's not as though we just have to try to tough it out here in this life and then we'll finally make it to the finish line. No, the Bible says that God is actually using our suffering. He's working in it to prepare us for that day when Jesus returns. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 says, We do not lose heart. Why? 
Because though our outer self is wasting away, our bodies are hurting, relationships are strained, depression is setting in, our minds are giving way, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Paul's not trivializing your sufferings by calling them light and momentary. If anyone suffered, it was Paul. 39 lashes five times, stoned, shipwrecked. Goodness, he was writing that from prison, chained to two Roman guards. He certainly didn't think lightly of suffering. But he calls our suffering light and momentary because compared to that in Revelation 21, it is. Compared to eternity, it is light and momentary. That's why we can press on. That's why we don't have to give in to despair. That's why we don't have to grumble like the Israelites when God calls us to walk through suffering because we know how the story ends. We will be with Him again. Amen? And we know that even in the suffering, God's actually just preparing us for that day. He takes what Satan intended for evil and He intends it for good. That's how God is at work in the midst of evil and suffering. And that's what I want you to remember from this series. I love you guys very much. And my desire is that every one of you would grow in your love for Jesus and that you would press on and hold fast to Christ no matter how deep and no matter how dark the valley is that you may have to walk through. We are very um, materially blessed in this country. There's some good things that come with that. There's some bad things that come with that. One of the disadvantages is that I think that um, oftentimes uh, we don't really um, have our faith tested very much. And when suffering does come, it really throws us for a loop. And we struggle on how to deal with it and how to handle it. And uh, we don't know what the future holds in this country. We enjoy religious freedom now, but... All you have to do is go back and look at World War II to see how quickly politics and society can change. And whatever happens, um, I want you guys to be able to press on and persevere to the end and to hold fast to Christ.